a dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle Welcome to Veteran State of Mind, I'm your host Garen Jones And we have a very special guest today Not long returned from Ukraine where he's been fighting on the side of the Ukrainians since the very early days of the war. So I know you guys are going to be very, uh, very excited about that and very grateful for his time. Uh, before we get into it, I want to say a massive thank you to Combat Fuel for sponsoring today's episode. I've told you all about my juicy gains in the past, guys. Combat Fuel make all kinds of pre-workouts, make all kinds of supplements for gains, for, for recovery, and they've got supplements for things like your multivitamins, your zinc, all that kind of stuff. You can check them out at Combat Fuel on social media or combat-fuel.co.uk or just click the link in the show notes. Uh, use the code VSOM when you're at checkout and you'll get juicy discount for your juicy gains. And I also want to say massive thank you to Zulu Alpha Straps. We've got Christmas coming up. I know it's a little bit early to be talking about Christmas. That being said, you know, you might want to start saving your pennies for a nice Zulu Alpha Strap. Maybe if you're planning on going on operations, you might want a nice robust watch strap to keep your timepiece in place. Maybe you want to give a present. Let's be honest, times are tough. You would love to give a nice Amiga Sea watch to your dad, but you probably can't afford it. So get him a nice strap instead and say, dad, when I get a nice lucrative job, you can have a timepiece to go on it as well. So check them out at Zulu Alpha Straps, ZuluAlphaStraps.com, linked up in the show notes. Thank you as well to the Patreons who support this podcast. You can do so for as little as a pound a month. Um, the link is down in the show notes for that as well. Click on there, subscribe, quid a month, few quid a month. Thank you so much for everyone that's doing that because um, without the sponsors, without Combat Fuel, without Zulu Straps, without Patreons, there would be no episode. And uh, obviously a massive thank you to today's guest for the sakes of um, operational security, personal security. Not going to go into what his name is or who he served with or anything like that. All you need to know is he's an absolutely gleaming bloke. And I'm very glad for his time. So without further ado, please give a very warm welcome to our mate on the podcast. Let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for giving us your time. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Good to uh, finally get this chat organized and sorted. Yes. Well, you jumped on last minute, mate, and I appreciate that. You're the first volunteer that we've had on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to today because I've got mates and stuff that have worked over there, but I haven't really had the chance to pick the brains of somebody that's been fighting over there. And, and, you know, we're, what are we now? We're in November now, war kicked off in February. So we're kind of, um, you know, it's been a while. It's been, it's been a while, mate. And I know you've been involved in a lot of it. So let's just jump straight in with the obvious question, which is, why? Why did a British forces veteran <laughs> decide to pack up the bags and get out of there? <laughs> yeah, that, that is the obvious question and a question a lot of people ask. And I, th I think for me, I look at all the reasons and I look at the other people that are out there and their reasons. There's a little part of each one of those reasons. And they are everything from, you know, we joined the military maybe to, to see some sort of action and the action that we, we got or didn't get, uh, we, we want to see more, you know, there's, there's some people that are out there solely to promote their brands, you know, their, their Instagram page, their ego, whatever it is. And I can't deny it's, it's not a little bit of both of those apart from I'm not promoting a brand or, or anything. Um, but for me, you know, during the first week of that war, it hit home how close it was. You know, this is Europe. You know, I, I did a tour of, of Afghan and that, that felt more like work. You know, it was, it was a job. I didn't have this like real connection with that place. And I didn't feel the call to go out there and, and do that job. It just was a job for me. Whereas in Ukraine, there definitely is like uh, more of a calling. And whether that's because you see these people and you, you see them as Europeans, you see them as, as more of a neighbor. And, you know, I, my, my wife is from Eastern Europe as well. And I'm not saying that's you know, the reason I'm there. I just feel more of a connection. So when they put that call out saying they're accepting foreign, foreign fighters, then I thought, you know, this is something I can do. This is something I've trained for and never really put a lot of that training in place. So it's something I can do and something I can help with. So. So had you been following the conflict 
kind of closely before that or was it when it kind of like you know no pun intended like blew up on the, in the media and yeah when was your kind of interest in that area kind of stoked i was fully aware of it without really you know getting my head in the books or anything i was aware of it for for many years you know all kicked off in 2014 and i had friends working out there um reporting war crimes and reporting the the artillery barrages and stuff uh, out in the east so i knew it was happening and then you know that that first week uh, when biden says you know they they might be pushing across the borders and stuff i was i was really glued to my laptop looking at every development and i thought i i wanted to be a part of it in some respect whether that's humanitarian aid or or whatever it was so the first step for me was really just just buying a ticket and and heading out um and at that point i had I had no plans and had no idea um where it would end up uh, and of course I, I listened to your podcast uh with aiden um a few years ago um as well okay well i'm glad to know that we are a part of <laughs> fueling your war desire it's kind of what the opposite of what i'm going for mate but good good um <laughs> So what, what was no, it like? That's, that's the answer how I was yeah, aware of that. Yeah, I, I got you, mate. And obviously, you know, we're all very glad yeah. that Aiden is uh, back home in one piece. So I'm um, all very happy about that. So what was like the experience of kind of like, onboarding into the Ukrainian military like? I was pretty fortunate. I mean, you are all part of the Foreign Legion, um, but there's people that are embedded in Ukrainian units. There's... Um, there's lots of different scenarios you can get yourself into. Um, and I found myself with a small team of Westerners that were kind of operating in the foreign legion, but we could set our own, we set our own ops and, and we had Ukrainian hierarchy that were fully on side that would tell us if an operation was stupid or not. So we could join other units operations to, to assist them or we could do our own ops and maybe ask them for an extra sniper pair or something like that. Yeah, it, it was a good position to be in because, you know, there, there was there's some crazy stories out there and some guys that have been sat in trenches for, for three months. And unfortunately, we weren't in that situation. You know, we pick and choose which what we what we wanted to do. And was that down to the kind of level of experience that you and those other guys were bringing to the table? Yes, I'd say the the guys that started the team were definitely high caliber guys uh, with lots of connections. Um, and from then on, uh, we were able to choose who joined the team, and we could control, you know, who joined the team, who got fired. There, there were people fucking up left, right, and center, and they were gone by the next day. You know, can you give us any like specific examples of maybe like some of the Let's say, oh, I love the cat over the shoulder, by the way, mate. Big fan of cats. Listen, your little cat poking his head up from its OP on top of the bookshelf. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. I told was... him to be quiet for the podcast. So, <laughs> um, so um, yeah, when, when these, these guys that kind of coming in, can you give us some like examples of maybe like ways that people were kind of fucking up and being detrimental to the team? Yeah, like, fuck, so many examples. So, before this small team, that I joined, um, a lot of guys were heading to the GFL, the Georgian Foreign Legion. Um, so that's where I spent the first few weeks of the war. And in that group, uh, which is now a thousand strong, and they're, they're doing some incredible stuff on the front line, it seemed to be a easy stop for foreigners to come and join. It was just a name that got pushed around in, in the West and people said, oh, Georgian Foreign Legion, I'll go join them. So in the Georgian Foreign Legion during those early days, there were a lot of cowboys. There were Americans, super right wing that had been part of that demonstration at the White House, Bugaloo boys, all, all that, that sort of right wing militia guys that soon got caught out and they were on the train home the next day. There were English guys that we would check their, their IFACs, their, uh, their med kits and bearings would come out from airsofting oh wow there was a guy that got off the train with a prr headset on the train from warsaw just just guys 17 year olds that were on snapchat were there to to help but were just trying to pick up chicks 
but that that was in the early days and that was uh you know th- those guys didn't last long they got kicked out and sent home saying you're not ready for this and then in in the team that i was working with which was up to 15 strong um so it's quite quite a small team i don't know it's just idle hands you know like people just doing some stupid shit with with dems and you know dry ranges that soon turned into to live ranges and claymores and fucking just stupid shit man it's a really weird situation to be in because it is volunteer and you are in a war but you can't have the same sort of discipline in our group anyway because the worst that we can do is fucking smack them up a little bit maybe or fire them right so you're saying like without the higher like without that kind of like military hierarchy yeah there's a lot more room for so did that make you in in a sense kind of appreciate a bit more maybe the structure that you'd had while you were in the military a hundred percent because you know we we had a lot of guys that have been fighting in syria that hadn't had a military background and i think i was probably a little bit prejudiced i am prejudiced towards those guys and although most of them had seen action and most of them i yeah would would fight with definitely they're just not in the same sort of teamwork or discipline as nato standard people people that have you know during the first two weeks of foundation have been bullying their boots and you know that sort of shit i i generally think now that sort of foundation in your military training leads you to be a sort of soldier that you can rely on because yeah some of these jokers are just not not there for the cause more there just so they can get some more rounds down range right and it kind of makes sense right i mean the british army is over 300 years old you know it's everything even though we might not agree, like like everything at the time these things have kind of passed down for reason you know a, a lot of it um yeah so, that, so that's really quite interesting mate. so how would you go about then in a small team like that a team of volunteers people from all over the world you know what kind of training are you guys doing together before you go up to the front line if any yes i mean again during the during the early days um like the first month sometimes at the gfl the georgian foreign legion a friend of mine came back from uh defending the hostomel airport and they said you five get in the back of the truck we're off um there was no training there was no body armor no helmets two mags and an ak but then when we got into our and we created this this small team we had like sop days that were that were just focused on combining the best of like american sops german english um and to be honest some some ukrainians like we worked with some some decent really really good ukrainian teams and some of their inputs were were definitely stuff that i take away and i'll i'll put into into our like, sop package can you tell me a few of the kind of ukrainian ones that might be useful for because obviously we've got people who are currently serving um yeah anything on there that you think would that would be useful to anybody who's serving at the moment in a in current military so a lot of the things that we we learned there were really just kind of like how to react to, to our artillery and stuff but and they're on the ground situational dependent but something that really sticks to mind that i had never done and never heard of before was in in a patrol the ukrainians but these guys in particular before they step off they'll wave their rifle in the arcs that they're going to take so if you've got a contact front or you're just you know taking a pause for five minutes you don't have to wait for the guy in front of you to go, oh, I'm going to face left and I'm going to face right in that herringbone. They're just taking them straight away. So you've got that defensive position straight away. And that was the same um, if you've got a contact left or contact right. They said that some of the ambushes that they'd been in from or they've heard about from the Russians, the Russians were attacking from both sides. I don't know how that works. Maybe just like a follow up or they got defensive positions in trenches one side and then they get attacked from the other. So they don't, if they've got a contact left, they don't all swivel to the left um, and take up arcs on the left. Two of them in the middle uh, offset will look to the right as well, looking for just just things like that. That's um, that I'd never really heard of before that I thought was, yeah, good little tactics that these guys had passed to us. Obviously, you know, you did specific training for your operational tour when you were in the British military. 
um, you know, which had its own kind of way of doing things. But mm. most most of what the British military, the, the the bread and butter it's built on was Cold War tactics, right? You know, your section attacks and your company attacks and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Is that kind of like, do the Ukrainians do a similar, do they operate in a similar kind of system to that? For sure, yeah. Uh, and I think it's still massively applicable, things like section attacks and outflanking and fighting in, in wooded areas and stuff. Um, Fibuer and CQB, all of it is is definitely all the skills that we were we were using and we were training without that. And I, yeah. I, I don't know if you ever saw it. There was, I think, I'm pretty sure this was for the Ukrainians. They had like a recruiting advert, which was about a shovel. Remember that? No. And it was all about like the importance of a shovel and digging in and, and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, I've been watching, obviously, like everyone has the footage kind of coming out of the Ukraine and, you know, a lot of these trenches, you know, you're looking at like First World War trenches. So how has your shovel skills come on over the, over the past, like, what is it? Eight, eight, nine months. Cause I got some landscaping to do, mate. So I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking around. Please. Yeah. Please let me dig some more. <laughs> um, no, all, all the areas we were in, like it's, it's that classic thing on patrol. You're always looking for, for cover before you make that next, you know, hundred meters whatever but um everywhere we went had trenches had shell scrapes had i personally didn't do too much digging myself but really strangely actually t- talking about world war ii some of the areas that we were fighting in there were these really old rounded trenches and shell scrapes and and quite obvious defensive positions that i talked to my turk and he was like no they're um they're just for hunting and i said no nah, these are really old we started to to work through them and I, I started to find like mortars really really old and then we found some gas masks that were like clearly really old and then finally a barrel of like oil that had a date from the 40s wow and i don't know the history and i've tried to research it but you know this this is, it was like history repeating itself like fighting in the same trenches that they had used what 60 plus years ago eight years ago yeah, I mean, just just by coincidence, just before the war kicked off, I was reading this book. I want to cover it on the podcast sometimes. It's about a Russian tank commander, um, or sorry, a, a like one of those guys who'd ride on the back of the tanks, which is <laughs> mental. Yeah, and it was weird because he was obviously Red Army, but they were at the time liberating. Is it Lvov or Lviv? I can't remember which one's the Lviv. Lviv. They say it definitely between Poland and, and Ukraine, but yeah, Lviv. Well, yeah, and he was like the first kind of uh, his company were the first company into that town. And, you know, and these areas, you know, these areas are areas that have just been kind of massively, massively fought over. You know, I mean, that's the nature of a frontier, right? When you've got a frontier like that, you know, these are the same areas that's like, same as Afghanistan, you know, this is an area that's constantly at war because it's a frontier point. Yeah. Amongst the Ukrainians, and I've kind of got a bit of a follow-up question for what you were saying as well, but... Mm. Because obviously for us in the, in the West, you know, we don't really know too much about, like, you know, we had a, you know for hundreds of years we were at war with the French. What's the kind of like feeling of like that historical feeling of like that cultural feeling between Ukraine and Russia? Yeah. I mean, I definitely noticed and talking with my Turk, who's, who's a really intellectual, amazing guy. He, he told me a lot about that sort of side of things. And he's noticed in a lot of the cities that previously spoke Russian and you could, you know, easily talk to, you know, the barista about, you know, talk to her in the morning in Russian, like they're really cutting away from that now. They're, and then looking at some of the statistics, I was reading on one of the Instagram pages of how many people are now reluctant to speak Russian and how many people um, don't want to give any room for negotiations and stuff. So it's, and these, sorry, these percentages are like 70, 80, 90%. So it's, it's a really strong, united country, I feel. Like it's it's not like, you know, 50-50 or split down the middle. It's, yeah. So you mentioned the term. How is it working with language out there, like the working language? Because obviously you've got guys from all over the country. You mentioned Americans, obviously, so you're not going to have a language barrier yeah. there. But the Georgian Foreign Legion, I mean, how's your Georgian? Oh, sometimes, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. how does how that kind of all work in terms of language with, with these people you're working with? I feel like the Georgian Foreign Legion, for, for most Westerners, were, were a stepping stone, like, like myself, to then get into to a position where they're, they're in a, a unit that's fully 
multinational English speaking. But a lot of Americans are there because they're half Ukrainian. A lot of them are there because they're Russian speakers and were working there before the war. And then we've got some Latvians who spoke Russian and then some local guys that are on the team that speak very good English and also know their skills and drills. So, yeah. Right. The audience are going to be mad at me if I don't ask any stories about the pew, pew, pew. So can you talk us through like your first kind of experience? It doesn't even like, like necessarily, we could start with like your first experience of just kind of coming across, you know, it's the same when you go into any, mm. any war zone, right? You start to usually see traces of it first, right? So maybe burnt out holes and that kind of thing. Like what was, what was your experience of, of going up to the front like for the first time? Because we were working in, in small groups for the first couple of months, we weren't really doing, we weren't part of any big assaults. So everything that we were doing were like sniper ops, dropping grenades from drones, putting down anti-tank mines, um, AP mines. Before anyone gets upset about the AP mines, the, all of the ones that we put in place were logged on a, on a national database, as it were. Uh, and subsequently, the village that we put them in, well, actually, two of them were hit by Russians in an OP, heard the Russians screaming. Uh, and then all of the ones that we put in place when the town, when the village was liberated, we went back with an EOD team and, uh, and removed them all. But uh, yeah, other other occasions, like the, so the first assault that we were on was an absolute gaggle fuck. The, the Ukrainians have this thing of not clearing the buildings as they sweep through a village. So pretty much all the fatalities on that day were because Russians were still in buildings with the Ukrainians walking up the street and they were just hit from, from inside the buildings. So we were tasked to go to the southern end of the village, uh, which should be the most cleared and start clearing through the buildings and, and making sure that they're all, all empty. So we went back around, entered the village. Well, it was about to enter the village from the, the southern side. And there's a commander there that told us the Russians are running away. He called them orcs because he thought he was in a movie and stuff. He was. Like from the get go, we realized he was an absolute moron, but he was telling us, yeah, the orcs are up there. They, they haven't got any weapons. Just go and get them, go and get them. And we've always had a rule of, of never driving up a track unless we had cleared ourselves. And he told us, yeah, there's no mines. My engineers have, have cleared the whole road. There's nothing. And it's, it's a hardball road as well. So even less likely to, to get any mines on it. And then we were still hesitant. We were still asking lots and lots of questions and he was just telling us to go. Uh, and at the same time, there was a fatality and uh, a wounded casualty that needed evacuating. And we said, we are not rushing in until we know exact, the exact status of that road. Um, so an armored personnel carrier drove in front of us and you know, almost said, fuck it, I'll go, which is an absolute fair one, and go get the, uh, the wounded guy. So. I said, well, if we just follow their tracks, then I'm more than happy to go behind them. They can pick up the casualty and we can start clearing the buildings. And as we drove up the road, a friend of mine, the commander was in the, the front seat and he, just, he was just shouting, stop, stop, stop. And there was a, a barrier of anti-tank mines that the APC had just fucking driven over. So we got out the vehicle and checked all around us, did our fives and twenties and realized we had just driven over two lines of anti-tank mines. And it was a hardball tarmac road. And what they had done was as a tank had driven over this, this road previously, which was now sitting just beside us, um, the Russian tank, they had brought up like all the mud in the tracks and they had hidden these, uh, Two, three lines in total of about five anti-tank mines underneath the, the mud. And we looked at the mud and our tracks had driven over the mud. So like five centimeters away from the, from the fuse. 
and we said like fuck this there's there's no fucking way we're driving any further on this commander that's that's absolutely lying to us and we we carefully drove back over those two lines because we had already driven over those two lines without realizing and the apc came back uh, and we were trying to flag it down stop it bearing in mind he's probably got a casualty that's bleeding out they drove over the first barrier without without detonating it and we pretty much like hid behind our armored vehicle and then a friend of mine stood in the way of the last two um mine barriers and literally just like put his hand up his his hand in front of his face and just shouting stop and if it wasn't for him being in the way you know us shouting would have done nothing and it literally just put his brakes on and reared up and sat back down and just shouting mine at him and the and driver was like oh i, I didn't know and, and carried on are mines like the biggest threat out there yeah i mean artillery right mines and artillery like i've had a few friends lose their eyes um from shrapnel from artillery and a lot of the guys that we were working with like when we're partnered up for for a small op most of the guys most of the injuries yeah have been have been ap mines um and artillery so how does it feel? Because obviously you've been in Afghanistan where, you know, the threat I would say was the highest from IEDs. They, they, they caused the highest number of British casualties. Mm. How does that kind of feel being on the other end and placing them out yourself? Well, obviously not IEDs, but, you know, placing out um, victim-operated devices. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was something that I definitely um, thought about and thought carefully about before we did it. A lot of those ops we had been told to do, from which is obviously never an excuse but it wasn't like we were just going out willy-nilly, putting them wherever we wanted to. We were told by commanders that, you know, this is a strategic place that we need to deny the enemy movement in, which is why often there was an OP pretty close that could hear them being set off and following, you know, Russian screaming, we, we knew it had worked. But yeah, I, I've, I've got friends out there who are part of EOD teams, which are doing an amazing job. And, and he's always told me just, you know, I don't want people putting in victim operated AP mines. So it's always been at the top of my sort of criteria of knowing that when we place them, once the village is, is liberated and bearing in mind, these are, these are villages with no uh, civilians in them. Uh, it's just, very small ones right on the front that I know that they're, they're recovered when the job's done. What was that like hearing screams from somebody who'd triggered one of those devices? So I didn't hear that one. Uh, we weren't in the OP, but for me on, on other occasions, I've got to look at it as black and white that it's done its job or it hasn't. And to think that you're putting them in and there's not going to be screens or there's not going to be some guy with a, a leg blown off or, or damaged or broken or killed, mm. then you're, you're kidding yourself. So I'm not fucking reveling in the fact that the guy is screaming, but I'm also, you know, that that's what you're trying to do. That's the, that's the job. I, I think I look at it as, as black and white. Yeah. Denying the enemy and, and trying to eradicate them. Yeah, because obviously for British veterans listening, you know, is most of what we've done has come in the heat of the moment. Yeah. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm, so I'm working from guesswork because I've never been in that position, but I imagine, like you said, it's just, um, you don't get that, that kind of the heat of the moment, the adrenaline rush with that. It's a lot more kind of cold, but calculated and, you know, you're trying to win a war. So, mm. you know, it kind of is what it is. As a British veteran then, do you think that maybe we're a bit naive in the way that we won't use devices like that because let's say that you know we you know we trained and still train to take on a conventional enemy like russia should this be something that we have in are we like handicapping ourselves by by trying to have maybe a model high card with that kind of stuff not necessarily man i like like maybe you are handicapping but i think by such a small proportion and i think our other skills and drills would massively counteract that you know you could quite easily put a trip flare in and have that place zeroed in with mortars or, or whatever it is but um 
I think having better ethics and better morals kind of is, is worth maybe missing out a few people, a few Russians losing their ankles. But, but to, to go back to the, that, actually, the question you just said about the screaming, if I'm being honest with myself, we, we, we did plant some AT mines that we also heard uh, detonated. Um, so I would have thought in, in that detonation, you know, you're destroying an armored personnel vehicle or, or you know, quite a few occupants. And, and that, although when I heard we hit the AP mine and, you know, some guy's screaming, I'm like, oh, okay, did the job. But when we heard that we hit the, the armored personnel vehicle, it was, it was a little bit more of a celebration. Like, I don't know why, maybe because you can take the, the humans out of it it feels like an object that you're destroying and it is more of more victory you know rather than some dude lo- losing his leg but it yeah it was it was different to, to the ap stuff and, and that's the thing that's so interesting about morality in war is because like like you mentioned like you know you could have mortars on a on a note you could deny a place with mortars well that's still blowing a guy's leg off mm. right but we're but we're but we're okay with that for some reason and, and and I've watched mortars land on people and I've been like yeah fucking great mm. but then like there is a part of me that's a bit queasy about AP mines and I think maybe part of that is just that you think about yourself being on the end of it and it's almost like this British thing of fair play in a way <laughs> you know I was like oh come on that's not fair you know give us a good old fashioned mortar barrage instead yeah yeah no 100% man like, like for me the artillery without trying to be a bravado you know like I, I didn't mind the artillery because to me it was just a numbers game like whether they were going to hit you or whether you know whether they were going to be close enough whether the shrapnel was close enough um it, I, I just didn't i just i don't know it was just like if it happens it happens whereas on a patrol walking through woodblock that you know has had cluster munition you know that's got trip wires you know that it's got um OZMs and what's that, what's that mate? Sorry. Sorry, mate. They're like, uh, like, yeah, just trip mines. Um, they've got the ones that bounce. Uh, they've got seismic ones. Oh, wow. Well, like that goes off if the ground's trembling around it or something. Yeah. Ap- apparently, they can set them to one person up to 10 man patrol. So it, it feels the, the seismic activity. And when it get, reaches a certain level, it detonates. And that was what I was always scared about. Um, just because, I, I don't know, it just felt really different to artillery to me. Mm. You know, it felt more devious and uh, you can't really counteract it. Like, you're not going to see a fishing line, especially when you've got nods on. And, and like, so you mentioned the nods. Were you trying to do most of your ops at night? Or, or like, what, how was that kind of working out there in terms of like the split between day and night ops? No, for the reason of the mines, we, we barely did anything at night. The nods would be if something la- like a sniper op or an OP or something lasted too long and we, we'd normally bug out um, because the, the Orland drones had thermals as well. So we didn't really want to be in position at night. Um, so we'd, we'd be using the nods for to, to get out, uh, to bug out. Also, like some of the assaults, the one assault that I was talking about earlier, um, with the AT mines that, that lasted a whole night just because timing slipped and slipped and slipped. So, um, we fucked off after that AT mine incident, but yeah, that, that went into the night. So we, we, we always had nods on us, but yeah, didn't really use them that much. On that art, mate, on me, um, with, you know, mention, you know, not clearing the buildings. Why was, is that, was that just like that SOP or was, you know, what was the kind of reason behind that? lack of experience or i really don't know i I think it's probably because cqp doesn't really exist in a lot of these units like this particular unit was you know bog standard army it it wasn't you know any sort of special um well super well trained guys um but also they probably just noticed that if a village or a town is hit hard enough the russians run away right and they did like drones have had a huge part to play and they've constantly got drones up. And on that particular day, 
there was a drone up that we could see a bunch of, uh, of Russians running away, but it, it wasn't all of them. It was a fraction of them. So tell us more about how the drones are influencing the war on both sides. It's pretty mental. So the, the, the most popular one out there is, is the DJI. So DJI Mavic, like a completely civilian drone. So because of the, I think it was in Gatwick or Heathrow, um, when somebody chucked up a drone, DJI has made a, it's called Aeroscope. It's a device that can track drones. So you can see where the drone took off from and the whole flight path and pretty much anything you can see on the controller, you can see on this device. So the Russians can use that to see exactly where the drone was flown from and the whole pattern and see what it's doing and hit it with artillery. So we would change the SOPs that we put down the drone. We would run off 200 meters and we would fly it from 200 meters away and we'd land it back there and run to pick it up and run out. So we would be a decent distance away if artillery hit. Um, and some guys were saying that was, that was five minutes turnaround between flying a drone and, and getting hit by, by mortars or whatever the artillery was. And then drone, drone droppers had been quite a big thing. Getting a, you can buy them on Amazon, but getting a secondary device that clips onto the bottom of the drone. So some of the bigger drones can take RPG rounds while Mavic 3 takes like a 40 millimeter grenade. And they were making 3D printed tails for these grenades. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen the videos, like they, they drop, they spiral a little bit and they get really, um, they're not, they're not tumbling, you know, they're really, they, they work wonders. So yeah, we, we use those a few times. We bugged out from a sniper up once uh, after hitting, hitting a guy twice. And, um, and then when his mates came to, they, they realized what happened and they, they ran up and then hit the, hit the guys, um, that pop their heads out of the trenches with the, with the drone. So what are your kind of feelings towards the, the Russians that you're facing or you were facing? Again, I've got to see everything black and white. I don't think you can be there, especially on the front and start hesitating. But the fact of the matter is they're there and they shouldn't be. And to me, there's no point saying that, um, they don't have a choice. I think no matter what you do, you've always got a choice. And although a friend, a friend of mine was in Kyrgyzstan the other day and he said there are thousands, I don't know the real number, but there are thousands of Russians that have escaped Russia. That's one choice. Oh, is it like, you mean like to avoid the, to avoid being conscripted or something? Yeah. I mean, anything. There was a dude that, that shot the, um, an officer that was trying to conscript him. Really? Like, Ali, there's a lot of choices. No, mate, you're right. I mean, if it's you that, end up there. It's that old Viktor Frankl quote, isn't it? I mean, I'll, I'll butcher the quote, but basically, you know, that you always have the choice. You know, because he was the the Holocaust guy. He was like, you always have the choice about how you're going to react to a certain situation. So I believe that. I, I, I would I would agree with you on that. I mean, some choices are tough, and others don't. Yeah. You know, kind of don't don't get me wrong. And 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 these guys are in a shitty situation. I I get that, but the choice is good or evil, and like. If if you are there, then you you, you shouldn't be. And yeah, I've, I I just think of it as black and white. Have you had any interactions with prisoners of war? Right at the beginning, every couple of days, um, a saboteur would be snatched. But apart from that, not not really proper POWs. No. And these saboteurs, then would these be Russians pass themselves off as Ukrainians, or would these be Ukrainians who are kind of doing it on the side of the Russians? A little bit of everything. Um, some guys in frontline villages um, that maybe thought their village was about to be captured and they were helping the Russians. So they are Ukrainian, but they were helping the Russians. Um, some guys with dual, dual nationality, dual passports. And yeah, de definitely some. You know, I, I didn't know them case by case, but I probably came across four or five of these saboteurs. But yeah, I, I yeah, haven't, haven't come across any POWs. We, we definitely didn't, didn't nab any, that's for sure. And what, what happens to these saboteurs? To be honest, I, I genuinely believe that Ukraine is doing everything pretty much by the books. Like I, I think they really have honest intentions. The prisoner swaps and the medical aid and the prisons that the, uh, Russians and the saboteurs have been put in POWs. 
it's to me it's pretty impressive and yeah there might be propaganda out there and i might not have seen you know the realities of it but from my understanding and from what i've seen it's yeah it's pretty outstanding so these these units that you worked with the russian uh the ukrainian units as far as you could see they were following the kind of conventional thing and once somebody surrenders they're taking it yeah yeah, I mean, it's good to know. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned artillery and stuff earlier then. Is like, obviously that's, you know, a lot of people listening will have been shot at and things like that. Some of us will have taken IDF, but I don't think any of us can ever say that we've been on the end of a, a proper artillery bombardment, um, unless maybe it was in the, you know, maybe like Telic 1 or something like that. Yeah. What was that like for you first time being under like a proper concentrated kind of bombardment? I mean, we've... We've been under everything from missiles in the town that were hitting, I think, between 300 and 500 meters away. But it's it's enough to make the uh, the walls shake and, and some windows smash and, and the, all the car sirens go off. And knowing that you're in not a military building, but a building full of military soldiers, you think, well, they're, they're probably targeting us. And then everything from, you know, 120 mortars and one, uh, and tank rounds and, and everything. It's probably a couple of weeks ago, we got a, a real close one. We were sat in a car. Actually, there was six of us. There was five of us in the car. And we kind of was like, there's not room for you in here, mate. It's pretty, pretty cold, but you're going to have to stand outside for a bit. <laughs> and he, he saw the impact of the, of the rocket uh it was it was that close uh, every, everyone was fine um but it it just lit the whole place up you know just like saw the red and then there's this flash and um it was pretty intense but, but again to me i'm just like it hasn't hit me i'm absolutely fine i just i just don't i can't let it affect affect how you're gonna work I mean, a lot of the places as well have has basements, and we've we've ran through a village that was getting hit on on infill, probably because they saw our vehicle and the drones, and and you just run straight to the to the basement and sat there for three hours while everything's shaking. But what's what's it like as well? I mean, because there's quite so there's so many things like you know, what's it like when you you know looking through your scope or whatever, and you see an enemy armor moving around. You know, because I mean that that must be fucking wild to just see these other ta- like see armor moving around and being like, oh fuck, that's not ours. You know, like what what's that like? Yeah, to be honest, I I haven't been close enough to to see it through. I've got um, through my rifle scope. Um, I was on leave, and my team did a were part of an assault, and we're all clued up on end laws and everything now. This one guy, new new guy, part of the team wasn't clued up on the end law, and the tank literally rolled past him enough to st- stick his hand out and touch it. But yeah, I mean, I I I haven't done. We've all we've we've done AT ops, um, but it's mostly just been observation, like long distance for for artillery to hit it or drone ops and and stuff like that, so we can pass on the information to to units with artillery. Do you see any aircraft flying around? Enemy aircraft? No. Uh, well, <laughs> there was a few times where we hear them coming in and we're like, fuck, I hope they're Ukrainian. And they've turned out to be Ukrainian. But um, Orland drones are a big one. Like, they're uh, not uncommon to hear them. If, if, if the skies are clear, you know, it's, um, you hear, that, hear the buzzing and you know it's them. Because in those first few weeks, I remember, you know, a lot of the footage coming out, there was choppers getting shot down left and right. There was, you know, fighters getting shot down. Has the air walk, has it kind of cancelled itself out out there? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just the op- areas we're operating in. I don't know. I just I just haven't had that much uh, experience with it. The team did one operation a little bit further down south um, where they, there's been reports of Russian helicopters operating and they, I think they did a week-long stinger up um, but didn't see or hear anything, so that was... Uh, a bit of waste of time but um yeah it, it does seem like you, you see the numbers every now and again like oh there was another down plane but i remember yeah you're right i remember at the beginning just like every couple of weeks we'd be like oh they've captured this pilot that had parish uh, you know evacuated his, his jet or whatever but yeah maybe with the new 
the, the help that's coming from the West, maybe the Russians are less and less likely to, to use their aircraft. Or. Yeah, there just seems so much of it at first. Like there was, you know, you. Yeah, you're right, man. That was like what a lot of the footage was. And then it's just, I can't remember. Like, I mean, look, I don't troll for this stuff all day, so I'm probably missing some stuff. But, mm. you know, th- those kind of things are usually pretty widely shared videos, you know, that that kind of. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of thing. No, so, you're right. Yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't seen or, or heard of any like recently. So. But like, you know, be, I, I guess part of that as well is once a front kind of becomes stabilized and stuff, then, you know, there's probably this more reliance on, on artillery, which can get the job done without risking it. Yeah. You know, risking an airframe. And, and like, obviously it's a big propaganda. If you shoot something down and then take a pilot, it's a big, 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 big propaganda coup, right? Yeah, that's true. So obviously, you know, this war kind of like when, when it first started, what like, were you thinking that this is going to be like, uh, you know, it's all troops will be home by Christmas kind of thing? Like, what, what? how long were you thinking it was going to be going on for? Have you been surprised or, you know, like, how, how long do you think it will go on for? Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I've heard all sorts from, like, people that I really trust their opinion and stuff. And people are saying, well, because of the help from, from the West and, and America, uh, and I think we saw that recently of, of Biden's like kind of pushing for neg- negotiations again. Negotiations meaning like giving up a little compromising, you know, which Zelensky said he'll, he'll never do. So that's maybe saying people are, are trying to kind of finish it six months a year. And, and some people that I've talked to as well say, you know, the amount of resources that Russia has and the sort of missiles that they're using now um, shows they're really running out of the, the higher quality missiles. Some of them that are designed for sea warfare that they're using inland now, that are a lot more susceptible to electronic frequencies. I don't know how it works, but things that they shouldn't be using because um, they're not, not accurate um, in built up areas. So, and, and the sanctions really taking place. You know, some tank parts can't be made, and I don't know. I, I I I wouldn't be surprised if it finishes, like not finishes. I don't think it'll ever really finish, but like gets back to to a better status within like a year. But I I have no idea, man. And you you mentioned like Russia running out of ammunition. Um, I've also heard there's there's American divisions and stuff at the moment who have no training ammunition because all the ammunition's being sent out. To, really? Yeah. So. You know, this is kind of true on, on both sides. Um, I mean, there's only so much stockpiled ammunition. And, you know, I mean, yeah. And like the rate it's been going through over there is obviously incredibly high for both sides. So it's, um, that's interesting, man. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, that kind of thing, you know, and I, I think as well is like, I'm definitely a big believer that this war will come to an end when America decides it comes to an end and there's going to be another election. There'll be another, I've heard that. there'll be the, and in a year's time, we'll be starting the presidential run for, and it'll be a big thing for Biden to say he could end the war, you know? So, mm. but in terms of the Ukrainians, like what's like, it seems the morale is very high. Is that a fair assessment? It is. I, I would say so, man. Like even, even in winter, you know, I've, I've been to the, the, the front trenches where the territorial defense forces, you know, they're old dudes, they're farmers, they're like just people that are signed up to sit in trenches and, and, um, you know, they're not in the worst spirits. Like it's, it's, it's really good to see. And, and the, the, the civilians on the front line as well, like in, in between ops, you know, I, I want to be of use and to be honest, the, the biggest use I could be out there probably is not picking up a rifle. You're probably having a small effect in the grand scheme of things. So on my down days or whatever, I want to, I want to have as big an impact as I can. So I'll go out and I'll, I'll help with humanitarian runs and I'll, I'll see what the locals need on, on recently liberated villages and stuff and just seeing their morale and seeing how happy they are. You know, it, it kind of, it puts it into perspective and it clears your mind of like, Oh, maybe they were fine. Like, you know, Russian occupied, or maybe they, they don't mind, or maybe they're, you know, there's a little part of them that is pro-Russian and these old ladies and, and old men just absolutely ecstatic to, to help you. And, and she, we gave her a bunch of food and she came out giving me donuts, you know, just like these old ladies that probably have not much food left themselves and just so happy that their town's liberated. And yeah, it was pretty emotional to see. 
Was that was that your happiest moment out there, you two? There's been quite a few occasions where civilians had come up to us and they've broke down crying because they're so happy to see, not necessarily Westerners, but just people supporting them. And that's that was for me like the most emotional part was was seeing seeing how you're there for a reason and you're like I wouldn't say necessarily having a huge impact, but these people really really want you there, you know. They're really glad that you're there. Mate, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um is there anything you'd like to say that I haven't kind of picked up that you think would be worthwhile for for people to say for from any point of view whether it, it's a something something for serving military to know or just things you want to just talk about in the bigger picture there was one thing like the amount i've i've learned out there has been pretty crazy in itself like i, I don't know about what you learned in the military but for me you know whatever branch i was from pw or whatever it was you learn one trade and you tend to learn it pretty damn well but within the time that i've been out in uh, in ukraine i can confidently say all these different weapon systems and all these new skills that i've learned and for a war like this i think it's it's, it's a necessity that every soldier knows at least the fundamentals of everything so like 60 mil mortars anti-tank sniping uh demolition um you know the, the drone stuff like so much and and all the different weapon systems from you know different variants of ak and, and everything just yeah i mean there's probably probably a lot more that we that we learned as well yeah well mate you're always welcome back on for a part two bro um <laughs> mate thank you so much for this as, as i say it's been it's it's fascinating i mean like you said, like this is a, you know, Eastern European war, but like something closer to home and something that really we ha we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Um, so thank you so much for giving up your time, mate. Um, you're always welcome here. Appreciate it, man. And um, we, we will talk, we'll talk soon, mate. Sounds good. Just help a man up to his feet or hold a new one But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle